From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Tia Mitchell. It's another beautiful day in South Carolina. Nikki Haley is losing to me. It looks like she's going to lose by 25 or 30 points. Text, email everybody you know and let them know that it is important that they get out and vote. People don't like her too much and she's hurting the party. We're on the eve of South Carolina's Republican presidential primary, where polls show Donald Trump with a commanding lead over Nikki Haley. We're going to get a recap of this important race from Congressman Jim Clyburn. I'm Greg Bluestein, headed to Charleston, South Carolina, where I'll be watching the final day of campaigning and the votes as they come in tomorrow night. I'm Bill Nygut. We're also joined today by a journalist who knows South Carolina well, our boss, AJC Editor-in-Chief Leroy Chapman. Plus, we'll look at the fallout from a controversial ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court, which declared that frozen embryos have the legal rights of children. I'm Patricia Murphy. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. I'm Tia Mitchell here in the studio with Bill Nygut, Patricia Murphy, Greg Bluestein is also joining us, and we also have AJC Editor-in-Chief Leroy Chapman. Leroy, thank you for gracing us with your presence. We know you're busy running the world, so we appreciate you joining us. Good morning, and uh, not quite running the world, but... Yeah, I'm kind of. Busy it's sometimes. our world, Leroy. Ah. Yes. It's our AJC world. <laughs> I, I always have time for this, and I appreciate being invited because it is uh, certainly a highlight of my day, my week, my month to be invited to join you guys. So thank well, you. Well, thanks, and it's it was important for us to have Leroy with us today because it is the day before South Carolina um, has its Republican primary for, uh, of course, presidential primary. We've had you on before. Leroy is from South Carolina. He got his career start in South Carolina. Um, These polls show that Donald Trump is way ahead of Nikki Haley. But um, South Carolina is an important early primary state. And we're going to go ahead and bring on our guest, who's someone who knows Leroy well. We hope he has some embarrassing stories to tell about Leroy. So um, Congressman Jim Clyburn, he is currently the assistant Democratic leader, um, veteran lawmaker, all, you know, South Carolina just, the just the grand the father of South Carolina and um so the representative Clyburn thank you so much for joining us well thank you very much for having me and thank you so much for acknowledging uh Leroy I knew him uh before it all happened uh he's just a great guy uh I do have some embarrassing stories which I will not share. Oh, <laughs> thank you. You, Congressman, you are such a gentleman, and I do appreciate that about you. 
<laughs> We're going to see if we can pull it out of you by the end of this segment, um, <laughs> Leader Clyburn. So let's start out. Can you tell us what are you seeing? I know you're a Democrat. We're talking about the Republican primary. Well, Leroy, yes. you take you start us off. Sure. You're the South oh, Carolinian well, here. Well, yeah. So, you know, Congressman, um, thanks for, for being here uh, with us. And uh, like you, I've spent uh, a lot of these Saturday primaries. I mean, I think there was a question, well, why doesn't South Carolina vote on a Tuesday? Well, it is Saturday, and certainly it is an interesting uh, thing that we have these Saturday primaries because it is rather unique. But but I'm interested in, in what you think there is to learn from tomorrow's results because uh, I think that everyone expects uh, that former President Trump will win. Uh, but uh, I think we all know Nikki Haley, and she intends to keep running. But what do you think we can learn from tomorrow's results? And is there anything in particular you're watching that might tell you something about uh, either Clyburn, I mean, either uh, Haley or Trump or the general election? Well, thank you very much for having me. Let me say two things. Uh, one, uh, before I uh, get to your question, uh, Saturday primaries. Uh, this is not accidental. Uh, this is something that was well thought out. Uh, I was a part of the process way back when we were trying to make the decisions to switch South Carolina from a caucus state to a primary state. And we debated what would be the most convenient day for people to vote. We wanted to make it convenient for people. And there's always been a question of why Tuesday? Why do we vote on Tuesdays and not on the weekends as they do in many uh, other uh, countries, when it's convenient for people, they won't be working, etc. And we knew what the history was. We knew why they had elections on Tuesday. They didn't want it to be convenient uh, for working people. So uh, that's why uh, we selected Saturday to do this primary, to do it on a day that people will not have to be at work and would uh, spend a part of the leisure of the weekend, uh, casting their ballot. Now, having given you that little bit of, of a history, uh, let me answer your question. Look, this primary uh, on the Republican side uh, is probably uh, going to be a, a wipeout uh, for Trump, uh, insofar uh, as this year is concerned. But that's not what Nikki Haley, Haley is doing here. She is trying to provide an off-ramp for Republicans. Uh, if something were to happen, uh, a conviction of Trump or Trump begin to take a nosedive in the polls. And I do feel, as I travel around South Carolina, uh, that Trump is uh, beginning to wear thin uh, on voters. They are tired of the chaos. And I think Nikki uh, has uh, hit her stride, so to speak and challenging him uh, in that regard. And then if that were to be the case, Nikki could be that off-ramp. However, if that is not the case, and he still goes, she has uh, the opportunity to be an alternative uh, come 2028. So this is a win-win situation for her, even if she were to lose uh, this primary uh, as everybody predicts. So uh, I think Nikki is in the catbird seat, so to speak. Uh, and I think uh, her staying in makes all the sense in the world. If I were in her place, 
I would be doing the same thing in the same way. So, so Congressman, a lot of Republicans uh, aren't, aren't feeling that way. It looks like the leadership uh, in, in South Carolina really wants uh, Nikki Haley to get out of the race. They want to clear the field for Trump. Uh, they want to start the, uh, the general election. And you know um, uh, f- uh, former Ambassador Haley, former Governor Haley, and I think we both saw that she was a formidable candidate, and we saw her win in South Carolina. So talk a little bit about what you think uh, could be the case if uh, President Biden does have that matchup between uh, Nikki Haley instead of Trump. Uh, what, could th- what could that look like? Well, it could be uh, a challenge. It will be a different campaign. Uh, but uh, that would be challenging for Nikki as well. Uh, Nikki Haley uh, is very uh, astute. Uh, I don't know how quick a study she is, but if she is, she might be able to get ready for a general campaign. But let me tell you something. Uh, this campaign, uh, as any other campaign, is going to be about laying out a vision for America's future. You're going to have to defend the things uh, that you've said. You're going to have to defend the record uh, that you've developed. And Nikki Haley is going to have a hard time defending that record. Now, she has said some things uh, simply regarding slavery, for instance. I don't understand how anybody uh, could possibly say uh, that this great country of ours was not always great for people of color. My forebears were slaves in this country. That's not racism. Jim Crow, that's not racism. The Dred Scott decision back in 1857 uh, decided, uh, what's his name, Chief Justice uh, Haney, uh, said that no black man has any rights that a white man must respect. That's not racist. That's what the 7-2 United States Supreme Court decision was. So Nikki Haley is going to have to defend all that. She even said something yesterday that I'm, uh, I was interested on this embryo business. Uh, and now she's trying to walk that back. You can't have it both ways. And so Nikki Haley is going to have a hard time uh, stepping up to a national campaign. So without being challenged, she may be doing well in polls against Joe Biden. But when uh, the, the primaries are over and you're in the general election and you got to lay out a vision for the future, you got to defend this 6-3 Supreme Court that's taking rights away from women, a Supreme Court that is making harder uh, for people of color to cast ballots uh, in, in an election, a Supreme Court that seems to be uh, wanting to relegate women back to a status they once had, as well as people of color. Now, she is going to have to lay out a vision for how she will deal with that. Joe Biden has already laid his out. We know how he's going to deal with it. And so many people who are answering these questions in the polls are people who agree that women should not have uh, the right to make their own decisions about their reproductive choices. And that, to me, is going to be a tall order uh, for Nikki Haley or any other uh, Republican. Not to think about the foreign policy aspect of this. We are on the verge of going it alone in the world. If anybody thinks uh, that this country can be 
isolationists and exist successfully, they don't know history. And that is just as plain as I can make it. Congressman Clyburn, this is Greg Bluestein. I am not from South Carolina, but I come from a long line of South Carolinians out of Columbia and Charleston and Georgetown. I think I even have a cousin in Bamberg. Um, but I'm curious for us Georgians, what are you most closely watching during tomorrow's primary? What aspect of the primary will you be really honing in on? Well, you know, I'm going to do this primary like I do all of them. I, don't, I will be going county by county, uh, even in some instances, precinct by precinct, uh, in order to make uh, a decision about what did, in fact, happen and why it happened. Now, if she gets wiped out, uh, there'll be places where she would be doing well, and I'll be looking to see where those places are uh, in order to uh, form an opinion about what really happened. I remember back in 2020, everybody seemed to be so surprised uh, that Joe Biden uh, carried South Carolina so big in that primary, won about 29 points. Uh, so I went and looked precinct by precinct. Uh, I'm going to be in Charleston uh, on Sunday. Uh, I'm going to be on John's Island, uh, and as I do uh, for every other visit. I looked at the John's Island results from, uh, from 2020 and 2022. I looked at about six precincts out there. And surprisingly, uh, Joe Biden uh, carried these precincts big time. And some of them where he even lost, he was carrying a much larger share of the vote than people suspected. And so that's the kind of thing that I do in order to determine what happened in an election, in order to prepare for the future. So I don't know exactly how I'm going to react uh, to tomorrow's primary until I see the results and see where those results came from. So, Leader Clyburn, you mentioned um, looking at the results and preparing for what all signs are pointing to a potential Trump-Biden rematch. Before I ask you a question, I want to play an excerpt from our exclusive interview with Nikki Haley that Patricia conducted just yesterday. The whole thing is to continue to try and be as competitive as we can, whether it's South Carolina or Michigan or Super Tuesday states and beyond. What we are focused on is the fact that 70% of Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. Now, we can note to um, our listeners that the full interview um, is on Thursday's episode of Politically Georgia. You can go look up our podcast episode. But the point she made, uh, Leader Clyburn, she says 70 percent of Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch, but it looks like that's the rematch they're going to get. How do you plan? You talked about uh, having to be accountable for what was said, having a message. What's going to be your message, particularly to the younger voters or the voters who are concerned about Biden's age? You know, age is a very relative thing. I was speaking to a group of students that are about 25 students from the University of Florida, uh, University of South Florida, uh, to be exact. They were here. Uh, following this primary. Uh, on Saturday, uh, I met with them. And I said to them, you know what? I'm two years and four months older than Joe Biden. Uh, do you think uh, I'm capable? And they were shocked. I mean, they uh, in the room. I said, my style is different from Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not going to be bombastic. He's not going to be publicly calling people's names. You will never hear him uh, or see him look into a television camera 
and refer to a black woman as a dog. You will never see Joe Biden do that kind of stuff. So your problem, and I say this to young people, because every time I talk to them, that's what it is. It's about style. Joe Biden doesn't seem like he's doing this, uh, rather than substance. And so I say to young people, vote on substance. Cast a selfish vote. What do you want your future to be? A future uh, that you get uh, from someone who shows no respect for women, shows no respect for people of color? Or do you want your future to be someone who has just eliminated uh, $140 billion of your student loan debt? Someone who has just made it possible uh, for you uh, to have a job among those 14 million new jobs that have been created. Someone who says that your mother or your grandmother uh, on Medicare will no longer have to pay four, five, and $600 a month for their insulin, but that insulin will be capped for them at $35 a month. And someone who says he wants to do the same thing for everybody in need of insulin. Cast a selfish vote. That's what I'm saying to young people. Congressman, it's Patricia Murphy, um, the political columnist here at the AJC. Um, When we see President Biden, he does seem to have lost a bit of um, of his, the pep in his step. He seems to have slowed a bit. But you know the president very well personally. You know him so well. You managed to get the South Carolina primary bumped up to the um, very top of the pack and really helped him, um, I think, build up the momentum he was looking for. But tell us what you see behind the scenes when you're talking to President Biden. What? Do, how do you know him and how are you seeing him perform right now? I see behind the scenes the very same thing you see in front of a camera. Well, let me say this, and I think this is very, very important. Joe Biden stuttered, stuttered badly when he was a child. He worked hard to overcome stuttering. And every now and then, you see it in his speech. When something comes up, he sometimes rushed uh, to get the thought out uh, for fear of the stuttering. Uh, that plagued him as a child, which he's overcome uh, significantly, but not 100%. That's number one. Number two, I will say to them, when you rank, see the rankings of all the presidents. I just saw a recent ranking of the president, and they were saying these rankings, they had uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt upset up there like uh, second or third among all the presidents ever. And Franklin Roosevelt was in a wheelchair. So he, didn't, he couldn't even step. So it's got nothing to do with your effectiveness, whether or not you can run or even walk. The question is, can you think? Can you analyze? Can you build relationships with people around the world? Can you run this country? Because you're in a wheelchair, it's got nothing to do with your brain. Because you've lost a step, it's got nothing to do with your analytical abilities. And Joe Biden has demonstrated that time and time again. And people keep worrying about whether or not he stumbles over words. And you know full well the guy uh, stuttered badly when he was a child 
and to spend his whole life trying to overcome it. Congressman, so I think it's very unfair uh, for us to sit there and say that if he ain't uh, running around the block, diligent uh, to walk uh, straight up, uh, that it has something to do with your brain power. Congressman, you got a guy on the other side that shows every day that he can talk loud, but he says nothing. Congressman, I apologize for interrupting you. This is Bill Nygut. Um, my, my question is this. Um, we know that the Biden campaign has been in full um, attack mode on Donald Trump, um, attacking him as um, a reprehensible uh, character who does not have the uh, moral character to be president. They point out all of the outrageous statements he makes. But here's my question. In 2016, the Hillary Clinton campaign thought that painting Donald Trump as unfit to be president would be an effective strategy. And of course, they could never imagine that Americans would elect someone like Trump. That full-blown attack that the Clinton campaign used and didn't work, um, does it worry you that it's not going to work for Biden? And what should the issues be that he focuses on? Absolutely not. It doesn't worry me at all. Joe Biden got 7 million more votes than Trump got. Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes uh, than Trump got. The problem we've got here is this age-old thing we call an electoral college. In any other country without an electoral college, both of them. Well, Joe Biden did win in the electoral college, but Hillary Clinton lost after winning by 3 million. She lost because they have an antiquated system that was made uh, a deal, was made with the former slave states uh, that we call the Electoral College. Now, that's why we got the Electoral College. So, I, so we focus on these campaigns on 17 to 19 states when we got 50 states simply because this is Electoral College. So we all have been trying to reform the Electoral College because we know that we have outlived that. We are no longer making deals with slave states in order to keep the union together. And so let's just be clear here. Uh, Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton got more uh, popular votes than uh, did uh, Trump. And there's a history for this. In 1876, Samuel Tilden got more popular votes than Rutherford B. Hayes. But because he, did, he was fell one vote short in the Electoral College, the election got thrown into the House of Representatives, which is exactly what they were trying to do on January 6th, trying to get the election thrown into the House of Representatives so the horse trading can be, could begin. And maybe they could do the same thing in 2021 that was done in 1877 uh, when the southern slave states they wanted to go back to pre-Civil War, cut the deal with Rutherford B. Hayes, and made Hayes the president, brought an end to Reconstruction, and ushered in Jim Crow. That's what was trying to take. they were trying to do uh, on uh, January 6th in 2021. And I will say to your listeners, be careful. Be careful here. In that particular case, Samuel Tilden was a Democrat. Rutherford B. Hayes was a Republican. And Brother B. Hayes double-crossed uh, his uh, Republican friends because 99% of all the black folks uh, back then were Republicans. And Hayes double-crossed them then, 
and Trump was double cross you now. <laughs> well, we're running out of time, Leader Clyburn, but I'm going to give the last question to Leroy. Uh, Congressman, this is a pretty important one, and we want to get you on the record. So which is the better party? Is it the Clyburn fish fry? Or is it homecoming at South Carolina State University and you have to make a choice and don't be a politician about it? Choose. <laughs> I'm not going to be a uh, The Clyburn fish fry is a better choice. So are we all invited, Leader Clyburn? Because between Leroy, our colleague Maya Prabhu, who also covered South Carolina politics, they just say the fish fry is the place to be. Absolutely. And not if you just because you may want fish, but that's the place to be if you want to see a tremendous, uh, what I call, a gathering of uh, political elites and those people that I call foot soldiers who get it done to watch the interaction between governors and presidents wannabes and people who've never been outside of their precincts except uh, to go to church and to work. It is a tremendous thing to behold. Come and witness it. We're going to come witness it. And will you please come back? We want to talk more about campaign 2024. We want to talk about you and your legacy in politics as you step down from your leadership role. So please come back and join us, Leader Clyburn. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We've got a great offer for Politically Georgia listeners. And listen closely because this is the South's Biggest deal. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week for life. As long as you keep your subscription, that's our sports and politics coverage, breaking news and in-depth investigations, food and dining, and more from the AJC.com every day for life. You'll also unlock access to our app, exclusive films and events, and newsletters. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. A great deal for a greater Atlanta. And this is for new subscribers only. So, guys, we're going to pivot to this breaking news. Now, our AJC colleagues, let's see here. There's, there's several reporters on the byline. Bill Rankin, David Wickert, and Tamar Hollerman. And... Um, Again, what they did is Trump's attorneys have looked up Nathan Wade's cell phone records and they looked at him pinging off the towers, but they paid special attention to when he was pinging at a place for long periods of time, indicating he was stationary. And they said it indicates that he was visiting Fonnie Willis a lot at her condo in Hapeville. They also said they uh, exchanged thousands of text messages and calls kind of before their testimony as to when their relationship began. And I want to read this excerpt from today's uh, breaking news. Our colleagues write, the timeline is important for two reasons. 
if Willis and Wade were a couple before she hired him, it raises the prospect that she may have violated at least the spirit of anti-nepotism rules, though Fulton's policy specifically focuses on family members. More importantly, both Willis and Wade have testified under oath that the relationship began in 2022. If defense attorneys can prove that they lied under oath, it could constitute perjury. Now, none of us, we're all journalists, not attorneys on this show, but we can talk about how potentially problematic this could be. Leroy, you've been in the meetings as editor-in-chief helping guide our coverage. What was some of your initial reaction to what our colleagues um, are reporting? Yeah, so, um, yeah, we've been discussing this. Uh, Broke the news this morning, uh, had uh, an inkling of it yesterday, and and really talked in depth about what it means. But I think you hit uh, the point uh, about what this might mean for the timeline because, you know, we all saw what happened in that hearing uh, just a little bit ago where both – both Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis were on the stand. They were being questioned by these defense attorneys. And those defense attorneys sort of painstakingly uh, wanted to lay out a timeline. And so if what we see here contradicts that, it's going to create a problem. And so it creates a legal problem. I think up until now, part of what we had seen about whether or not Fonnie Willis had uh, hired Nathan Wade and had illegally benefited from it was something that uh, I think all the legal experts we talked to said was, you know, really unlikely. But uh, the judge had to at least, uh, you know, hear the argument. And that's what got us to last week. But but, but here, if uh, in that hearing, the irony of it, if in that hearing uh, there is inconsistency that could uh, constitute perjury, of course, we don't know that right now, but that would create a problem with the case. And uh, worst case scenario is that, uh, the uh, DA is disqualified. Uh, the case has to go elsewhere, and it would, uh, at the very least, uh, mean that someone else would have to pick up the case. And the future of the case would be in serious doubt at that point because you don't have the same timeline, and then you would have to have appoint another prosecutor. So this is big news, uh, and there are several things that could happen here in short order that could change the trajectory of what we are seeing here. Tia, you know, yeah, look, Leroy summed it up great. I mean, we, we don't, as reporters, we don't like digging into, we don't look to dig into some of these salacious details, but this has such an important uh, role in the outcome of this case. And as Leroy mentioned, we've, we've sort of described a disqualification of Fannie Willis as a death knell to this case. And there's a good reason why. It would then be up to, if, if her office is disqualified from pr- prosecuting this case, it would then be up to the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia, which is a nonpartisan state agency, but there's still politics involved with any nonpartisan state agency. They get their money from the Republican-controlled legislature. And so far, we've seen them take at least 18 months now and counting to appoint a prosecutor, to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate uh, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, who Fonnie Willis is, was disqualified from investigating for his role in trying to subvert uh, President Joe Biden's 2020 election victory. And that's just one of the 
of the potential defendants. We've got 15 others, including the former president, um, who are still uh, who still have pending criminal charges against them. So if it's taken 18 months for one of those cases, and still we don't have a special prosecutor, uh, just imagine uh, the 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 links, the, the the trial and error, the the struggle ahead for the prosecuting attorney counsel of Georgia to appoint someone to investigate the rest of the case. So this is this could have serious ramifications on the outcome of this trial. So I want to, um, for myself, when seeing this report, just tap the brakes on my own thinking about it, because it's very important to remember that this is Donald Trump's attorney and other defense attorneys looking for anything they can to undermine Fonnie Willis and her prosecution and her personally um, not prove their innocence. And I think the more the conversation is on Fonnie Willis, now, did she leave the door open to that? Yes, she did. I don't, I'm not a cell phone data expert, so I don't know exactly how to read into this, um, this new information. Um, but uh, there was a call earlier today um, among some, kind of, some Democratic, not activists, but Jen Jordan was on the call. She's been on, the, she's been on this show before. She's a former state senator. She said her concern is that the Trump team is using the mechanics of the court system to undermine the rule of law here, that they're using the court system against itself, making accusations in these filings, and then saying, okay, DA, now you prove us wrong in a publicly televised setting. Some of the accusations that were alleged the last time around um, were not proven in the court hearing. That She and Nathan Wade did not seem to have lived together, although that was alleged. They do not seem to have had an encounter the very first night they met. That was alleged. So I think we need to let all of this play out. Unfortunately, though, because it's in court filings and it is public, this is the conversation right now. Yeah, Patricia, I really think you've made an excellent point about all of this. Um, the reporting by our team is is really significant, and, and it's going to be weighted into in a lot more depth in the days ahead, especially to what extent did Nathan Wade or Fonnie Willis on the stand provide testimony that this cell phone data allegedly contradicts. But here's the thing. This is so, so unseemly. Um, and so incredibly ironic that the candidate for president in 2016, who was exposed in the Access Hollywood tape as talking about his behavior, his crude behavior, his assaultive behavior uh, toward women, is now digging so deeply into a personal relationship between Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade. And it does make me wonder, to some extent, again, you know, they may have committed perjury. We don't know yet. But it does make me wonder if a woman is held to a different standard in a court. When you go back and think about the way in which she was questioned by the defense a week before last, ask such intensely intimate questions. I can't help but wonder um, to what extent the fact that she is a woman in power who is um, being attacked uh, by Trump's lawyers in an effort to get out from under this very serious uh, charge against him. And we should know, it kind of, you know, Fonnie Willis has said this, like, I'm not the one on trial, but it kind of seems like, at least right now, that's kind of where the focus has been, not just with the hearings in the cases 
um, the different motions filed by the defense attorneys, but you also have Nathan Wade's ongoing divorce, and it's now factoring into everything. You have ethics complaints. The Fulton County Ethics Board just announced it's going to take up to complaints that have been filed against Fonnie Willis that relate to allegations that she violated open records laws by not reporting um, certain gifts she received, um, uh, her relationship with Nathan Wade and things like that. You know, so again, these are just investigations. Uh, ethics cases notoriously, you know, are private, then they take a while, and then rarely do they... Um, Rarely do they result in in really sanctions, just in general, when you talk about ethics complaints. But they're here, they exist, and they're moving forward. And you got to imagine, and Leroy, I'll ask you this, you got to imagine Judge McAfee, who we've given so much credit to for, like, managing this and you know, as as young as he is and relatively new to the bench, he's done a great job. But you got to imagine he's like, oh, brother, what next? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, we've uh, profiled uh, the judge to uh, speak about his experience. And, yes, he is a, uh, a, a judge who is relatively new to the bench. Uh, this this is a serious, serious case that's watched by the by the nation and beyond. And so, yeah, it's a lot of. Um, pressure on him for sure but I think the thing too that the judge has shown though even early on and again I'm not an attorney this is just witnessing our coverage and sort of what I've been able to see is that he has been um, focused on I think the main thing which again he has to go through these motions uh, the defense attorneys are you know permitted to make them they're permitted to make these arguments uh, I think he has promised that he um, wants to make sure that the rulings are made uh, at, at a time where uh, time is of the essence and surely he understands the clock. He wants to be fair to the defendants, but he also, I think, has a broader understanding, too, about the timeline, the pressure, and all the stakes. So uh, this, you know, I think complicates it a bit, but I think he's really aware of the timeline and also aware that this really is about what happened with the special purpose grand jury and then the grand jury. Because let's not forget, we had uh, citizens here in Fulton County. They heard nine months of testimony. Uh, it was a case that was put on that at the end of it, they made recommendations and they handed down indictments. Of those indictments, we've had some folks who have pled guilty. So there is this case. It's not like this case and it, the evidence hadn't been heard already. Uh, you know, we're really at the point of continuing on with those uh, defendants who have chosen uh, as they can, their day in court. So, yes, these motions will be resolved at a certain point. And I think the judge has a full understanding of the stakes and also the timeline. Uh, you know, Leroy, I, we, we didn't, we've talked before the show, we spent a few minutes talking about the political consequences of this beyond the court case itself. Honey Willis, Patricia running for re-election uh, in November. Whatever happens to the criminal case for trying to overturn an election, whatever happens next with that, I can't help but wonder to what extent, as popular as she's been, Patricia, with voters in Fulton County, uh, whether this might bring a Democratic challenger out on, uh, in this race. Well, I think as much as she's being attacked, that's going to resonate with many voters, including many black women yeah. who are a large share of that Democratic electorate in Fulton County. And I think most Democratic lawmakers understand that. 
So we're going to leave that conversation there, at least for this morning, and quickly just cross over state lines to Alabama. That's where the state Supreme Court issued a ruling declaring that in vitro frozen embryos have the legal rights of a child. And while pro-life groups are praising the decision, um, anti-abortion activists want that personhood for embryos uh, under the philosophy that life begins at conception. Um, But there's also been a heated response from women's organizations that's saying not only is it eroding women's right to choose, it's eroding women's rights to have children in ways that aren't tied to you know, the traditional ways of uh, of birthing a child, you know, it, fertil- women's rights, quite frankly, to address their own fertility issues. So, um, Greg, it's complicated uh, by the fact that Alabama's chief justice framed this ruling almost entirely around biblical um, precepts, biblical connotations. It, it was a very Christian nationalist ruling, quite frankly. Yeah, and that that Supreme Court uh, justice, that state Supreme Court justice is sort of seen as one of the fathers of the legal efforts to overturn Roe v. Wade in the the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's really, you know, it's putting a lot of Republican uh, anti-abortion politicians in other states in really tough positions, I would say. Look, Governor Kemp, who signed, of course, into law the state restrictions on abortion after as early as six weeks, he was asked about this ruling in Washington just yesterday, and he didn't talk specifically about the ruling itself, but he said, look, you have a lot of people out there in this country that wouldn't have children if it weren't for this IVF treatment. So you're seeing a lot of very conservative Republicans push back on this ruling and the implications it could have for a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be able to have children. Well, Patricia, I want to ask you, Greg made a point. We've seen conservative Republicans saying, you know, I like IVF, but they're, they aren't necessarily being clear what they would change in the laws to protect IVF, because a lot of them also do want to limit access to abortion. Um, what are the political risks for Republicans for creating yet another issue that drives people towards Democrats at the ballot box? Well, it depends on which Republican you are. So let's take Alabama's Senator Tommy Tuberville. Um, yesterday was asked about this ruling. He said, I'm all for it. And they said, what about IVF? He said, I'm all for that too. (laughs) And it's very clear he doesn't even know the ins and outs of IVF, nor the effect that this has on women's access to fertility treatments. And the other Alabama senator there, um, Katie Britt, said we've got to go back in and look at this law because this is limiting women's ability to start families. And it's the pro- life anti-abortion movement that has opened the door to this to make it possible for women who want to use IVF and parents who want to use IVF uh, might not be able to because there are no guardrails at all now for states. So even if you move this to the states, as somebody like Nikki Haley has said is appropriate, um, if you move it to the states and you're in a state like Alabama, if you have a very, very conservative chief justice who makes this decision, um, there are there are no limits to what this opens the door to also, including limits to contraception, including changes to the ability for gay couples to get married. You know, Democrats were told, well, no, you're being crazy. You're being hyperbolic when Roe v. Wade was overturned. But I think in some ways uh, 
they're being proven right that it was not hyperbolic to raise those to raise those red flags. All right. Well, we're also going to have to stop it there, but we know we'll be talking a lot about this ruling. Our colleague, Maya Prabhu, um, pr- provided a lot of context for our conversation today, and we know she'll be covering it because even Georgia's laws have created conversation about personhood for embryos and whether um, a pregnant woman can start receiving child support even before giving birth. So there are a lot of ramifications for what um, some of these states have done to limit access to abortion, and we'll we'll continue to cover it. So let's get to our final break. When we come back, it'll be time for our Friday features. We're going to answer questions from our listener mailbag and, of course, give you our choice for who's up and who's down for the week. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com newsletters. So, guys, it's time to answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into 24 hours a day. Leave your question and we'll play it back during our Friday listener mailbag segment. That number is 404-526-2527. That's 404-526-2527. Producer Shaney B., what's in the mailbag this week? Well, in the mailbag this week, Tia, it's uh, it's an email. I guess the uh, AT&T uh, cell phone outage <laughs> affected the, uh, the lines this week, but hey, they're back up and running, so give us a call. Uh, we got a, a, an email from Mike, and he writes, I listen to Politically Georgia every day. I'm going to jump ahead. Mike is my who's up for the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, I have a comment that I would like you to bring up on the show. He said, today, I drove by my local library in Sandy Springs and noticed that they had vote here signs up. I had not heard of any notice on the show stating that it had happened. Please make the public aware that they can early vote up until March 12th, I believe. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, um, let's start here. Our colleague Mark Nisi in the AJC.com. We've been covering early voting, but Bill, you yeah. want to respond? Oh, Mike, 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 you say you listen to us every day, which really gives me joy as well. But if you do, we have talked about early voting on the show. It's possible we haven't promoted it as much as maybe we should, but early voting is still going on. Of course, Patricia, there are Republicans who would like to see an end to early voting altogether. His name is Donald Trump. (laughs) But yes, so guys, there is early voting for the presidential primary. It's also, you know, because our candidates... A lot of people on the ballot, but I think there's not as much energy because everyone expects Trump and Biden to kind of win easily. All right, we're going to move on to who's up and who's down. 
All right. Every Friday on Politically Georgia, we round up the show with our winners and losers of the week in our Who's Up and Who's Down segment. We're going to quickly go through Who's Down, starting with Greg. Yeah, um, my Who's Down for the week, we're not quite sure what happened. You can send us your tips, but it's not a good look when Terry England, the top aide to House Speaker John Burns, has to remind lawmakers that disrespecting or mistreating staff is not tolerated under the Gold Dome. Lawmakers, please be nice to your aides. They're hardworking, underpaid, and they keep the wheels of our government turning. That was my who's down, Greg, but I have another who's down. AT&T, because I was hearing from lawmakers in the Capitol yesterday who were under duress and going through withdrawal without access to their phones. Um, I suspect that Governor Kemp might agree with my who's down this week. It would be Senate Ethics Chair uh, Max Burns, who uh, supported a move in the Senate to um, uh, 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 end motor voter, automatic uh, voter registration. Why would uh, the governor perhaps agree with me? Because it was as Secretary of State that Governor Kemp initiated automatic voter registration uh, so I doubt if this should get through. It's going to get to his desk and get uh, signed. Leroy? Uh, down, I would say uh, potentially the uh, movie industry in Georgia. And I say that just mm-hmm. because of uh, what we reported this morning. Uh, Tyler Perry, our own Tyler Perry, uh, is announcing that maybe he's going to put on hold uh, $800 million in development because he says that AI uh, is so convincing and as a tool that perhaps he doesn't need those new sound stages. So big investment, and certainly it does um, perhaps have um, implications that we, I think some of us have feared, and that could be coming. Yeah, so my who's down was going to be AT&T. I had to navigate to the WABE studios yesterday using just my brain. I couldn't do navigation. I was like, am I going to make it there? But since Patricia already mentioned them, I'll mention Fonnie Willis, because I know as much as she would like to make the Trump um, election interference case about him and his co-defendants, more and more it's becoming about her, and that's not a place any prosecutor wants to be, but that's where we are right now. So let's go to who's up. Um, Bill, I'll start with you. Well, I I will say that I am a great lover of country music and the history of country music. So my who's up is Beyonce. Her single, Texas Hold'em, is the first single by a black female artist to be number one on Billboard's country music chart. And she breaks a barrier that as much as I love country music, it has unfortunately been tinged by racism for many, many years, despite the fact that the earliest country artists were, in fact, African-Americans in their string band. Greg? Tia, this is a somber one, but my up is the life and the legacy of Janice Rothschild Bloomberg, who is a celebrated author mm. and speaker of Southern Jewish history. She died this week at the age of 100. She was the widow of the famed Rabbi Jacob Rothschild of the Temple, a civil rights advocate with Martin Luther King Jr. She was a lecturer, a scholar, an advocate for the community. May her memory be a blessing. Amen. Absolutely. My who's up are all of those candidates and wannabe lawmakers and anybody who sees themselves in the mirror and looks at an elected official someday because filing opens on Monday here in Georgia. We will be looking to see who is trying... Oh, excuse me. March 4th. (laughs) I'm sorry. A week opens a week from Monday. (laughs) (laughs) So we will be watching them carefully. I've been talking to a lot of candidates. I'm sorry. Who've been talking about 
filing and uh, they're getting ready. And I do. That's important because it's easy to say I'm going to run. It's relatively easy to file the paperwork that allows someone to like raise the money. But qualifying is a different threshold. And so it's always important to see who actually qualifies for the race because that weeds out the talkers from the doers. Leroy, your who's up? The South Carolina Gamecock women's basketball team who last night won uh, and uh, went undefeated in the Southeastern Conference, so claiming yet another Southeastern Conference championship. So best team in basketball and a salute to Dawn Staley. All righty. And I'm going to end the week with who's up for me. It's just going to be like the state of Georgia, the city of Atlanta. I've been here all week. I've had an amazing time um, meeting with my colleagues, visiting AJC kind of relocated newsrooms and boy is the new newsroom nice so um, I just appreciate my time down here the weather has been amazing so I'm up this week Uh, it's me it's me (laughs) I'm up all right so I appreciate you guys Leroy thank you for joining us Thank you guys for inviting me. I, you know, we've got an extra minute or so at the end. I wish we could call up Jim Clyburn to ask him one more time to say something embarrassing about <laughs> young, early journalist uh, Leroy. Patricia? Can I give my other who's up that I was going to do before I uh, moved qualifying up a week? And this, I really was going to do this, but it sounded a little too corny, but now I'm going to do it. My who's up are Andrew Morse and Leroy Chapman mm-hmm. for supporting this show. Yes. Because this week we have had on another presidential candidate. We have had on Jim James Clyburn. We have had on lawmakers and leaders. And we've brought so many new voices to our audience. And I think it's been a great opportunity for us. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Monday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.